The composer needs to view themselves as a storyteller first. All right, as a composer, you are part of a composite art form. All right, you are not just a composer. You are not just a sound designer or a sound engineer. You are brought on to help tell a story. So welcome to another episode of the podcast tentatively known as Sitting at the Table. So most recently, we watched Interstellar, one of my favorites, and Antonio had never seen it before. Mm -hmm. And so today we're just going to kind of discuss it. All right, you've got the, uh, from my perspective as a trained therapist turned professional musician, is Antonio's uh, perspective as a trained musician turned therapist. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about the emotions. We're going to talk about the way the story is told, the way the music kind of encapsulates all of these emotions and the story arcs. This would be a lot of fun, at least for us. Mm -hmm. So awesome. We've each gotten basically, we are, every time we watch a movie, we each pick three scenes that we want to discuss. So would you like to start off? I can definitely get us started. So, and just like a, a little, a little bit of a preface, this was I'm operating on not a lot of sleep, so yeah. <laughs> it was actually a pretty intense one for me. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I'll kind of go into that a little bit as we sort of as we sort of. It's a beautiful get into movie. The scenes. It really is. It's it, a very very great movie. I, if you haven't I, seen it yet, definitely recommend taking a look at it. Even, not not even just for like music's sake, but just for you know, it's incredible. Your emotions, yeah, <laughs> sake. <laughs> your 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 existential self's sake. So. Don't watch it at night. Yeah, don't Not watch the first it at night. Time. Let's let's watch it at like 10 a.m. Something like that. Um, <laughs> Give yourself time to process. Yeah, you definitely need right. that. So we're gonna go ahead and start with my scene. Um, so we're actually gonna start with the first scene that kind of establishes the conflict okay. when Cooper, Matthew McConaughey's character, leaves Murph finally. Oh, that was one of my scenes. So mm -hmm. we can talk about it at the same time. Yeah. All right, let's let's watch the first 30 seconds or so, mm -hmm. and then we'll discuss it. One for you. One for me. When I'm up there in hypersleep, or, or or traveling near the speed of light, or near a black hole, time's gonna change for me. And it's gonna run more slowly. When we get back, we're gonna compare. Time will run differently for us? Yeah. I mean, by the time I get back, we, we might even be the same age. You and me. What? Imagine that. Ah, oh, Murph. You have no idea when you're coming back. No idea. Oh! oh don't, don't mind. Don't make me leave like this. Come on, Murph. Don't make me leave like this, Murph. I love you forever. You hear me? I love you forever. And I'm coming back. I'm coming back. All right, we got to stop. That was, that was way longer than 30 seconds. <laughs> But I love this movie. But we get the, so much, right? Well, and we get like I mean, because it's hard to 
it's hard to kind of like see everything all in like a really short, you know, condensed yeah. kind of like um, kind of condensed showing. But you know, and especially something like this, and 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 the theme that I focus on with this one here is actually a theme that we see a lot. That I particularly see a lot. I'm a child therapist prim- primarily, so this was very interesting to me because mm-hmm. it's the theme of attachment. Mm. Right? It's the theme attachment. of attachment. Yeah. So okay. this is very complicated, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> it's what well, we didn't see quite. You know, for those of you who I hopefully hopefully you've seen it if you're listening to this. It's spoilers. <laughs> um, but uh, you know what happens is Murph tries to. You know, she's she's upset, and then and then. You know, Matthew McConaughey's character leaves and um, she tries to run after him to stop him or, yeah. or to say something to him. And then she actually she misses him. So she doesn't. He leaves already. We can fast forward to that part real quick if you want. Oh, no, it's OK. I, I think that I think it kind of encapsulates it. But, yeah, um, you know, so the big the big thing here is that this is a very when you think about attachment and when you think about particularly like kids like Murph is like mm-hmm. what, like 10, 11 years old. Something like that. I think something she's like 11 that. in the movie. Yeah, so I'm not going to get too into attachment theory and, like, what's going on right now. But, I mean, we can kind of see what's going on right now. It's pretty big, right? This is, Mm -hmm. everything is kind of, and particularly the music, is being portrayed from her um, perspective. Because this is a kid whose parents are leaving, you know? And in her mind, and, like, I can kind of, like, resonate a little bit with this. It's like, it feels like there's, like, no reason. And that's kind of like, you know, especially for a kid, you know, for a younger kid, we, they don't have the ability to like make that reason. So how does this fit with like. And they did clarify in the movie that he did not tell her why he was leaving. Right. He hinted at it, but he mentions like the whole point is a parent, you're trying to make your child feel safe. I think the line he says later is that keeping them feeling safe, that kind of rules out telling them that the world is dying. Right. The world is ending. Right. So yeah, it's. I don't know why I put that out there, but it's extra yeah. context. No, I was going to say, it's context. Well, and, and and all the context to kind of say musically, this has to be portrayed, right? Mm-hmm. So what do we hear in the music? We hear, it kind of goes back and forth between like some really dissonant kind of like oh, yeah. roadie sounding like minor chords, um, but then kind of back and forth to like some kind of really nice sounding chords, a little more harmonic. And um, that might feel confusing, and that's because it's supposed to. Yeah. Because attachment is confusing yeah right? there's a lot of use of dissonance in right. this piece when you listen to kind of like those minor some of those minor chords it sounds like horrifying yeah it's like really genuinely like anxiety invoking it's like impending doom and it's because this is a child whose caregiver is leaving hmm. you know so yeah. you have to kind of like you have to kind of create that and and really and i think we, we talked about it in the last one where when you extend that sound and you extend it and it doesn't feel like there's an end to it that's mm-hmm. what that feeling feels like, right? I don't speak yeah. from experience, but I speak from working yeah. with people who have had that feeling, and I can tell you that that's what it feels like. That's, yeah. what it, that's what it sounds like. That's kind of what we talked about in the last episode, the idea of building tension, building anticipation mm-hmm. uh, in order to have resolve. You can't have a resolution without that conflict first mm-hmm. and having that payoff. Yeah. So Hans Zimmer does a beautiful job playing with this kind of dissonance. Mm-hmm. And... I also had this scene on my list. And one of the big reasons is because not just kind of the dissonance involved, but also the intimacy. Yeah. And this entire score is incredibly intimate. All right. Intimacy is like at the core of the story and kind of the biggest kind of rule or not rule, but the biggest guide that a film composer or aspiring film composer can take from this is the importance of understanding your core story. 
Hans Zimmer could have very, very easily gone the big bombastic space odyssey type approach. Star Wars, Dune, Star Trek, a bunch of big kind of orchestral sounds or do something crazy like he did with Dune. Um, but the idea of having this huge sense, which he does do at times like this, but throughout the film, there's so much input on intimacy, including the use of the music. The music, the music is used very intimately in the way that this is a three-hour movie, and there's only like barely more than one hour of music. There's not a lot of music in terms of like there's a lot of scenes that don't have music in this film. I'm right. stuttering all over myself. Um, but the music, when it's used, most of the time, it's used very much to kind of speak quietly about the emotions. There are a couple mm -hmm. action scenes that I'm going to talk about later. But this was done very deliberately. And there's that famous story about Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan. And uh, where Christopher Nolan, when he was first thinking about doing this movie, he asked Hans Zimmer, would you give me one day of work? I will write a fable for you if you can read the fable and then just spend one day writing a little tune for me. He said, let's do it. So then Christopher Nolan wrote a short story about basically what it means to be a father. It was a story about the relationship between a father and his son. So then Hans Zimmer started thinking about his own relationship with his own son and what that meant to him and what it really meant to be a father. And so he wrote this beautiful, intimate piano piece uh, for Interstellar. And only after that was done did Christopher Nolan tell him, oh yeah, by the way, it's this massive solar system, galaxy-spanning uh, space odyssey. Mm -hmm. And that was done very deliberately because he didn't want the massive sound. He didn't want the focus to be on the setting. He wanted it to be on the core of the story. Yep. So as you work on your films, you need to spend that time to figure out what is at the core of your story. What is your story truly about? It's very, very easy for young film composers to kind of get stuck at the surface level. Mm -hmm. All right, where they see, oh, there are things going on on the screen. Let's just hit all the hit points. Yeah. Or this is a big story. Let's give it a big sound. That's not always what's important. So at the core of the, the, the kind of the way that you can kind of figure this out, if you have the chance, talk to your director. The director will always have a beautiful idea of what they want, a vision of what they want for the story. But if you don't work with a, a director, so for example, if you're doing a short film competition, you want to really focus on the character development, all right? The character development is going to tell you so much about the story. So look at your main character at the beginning of the story. What do they want and what do they need, as well as what is their weaknesses, et cetera, like that. Just try to describe your character and then go to the end of the story. How did each of those things change, if at all? If you can mark that change and then you can mark the spots along the story where that character did change, where this change happened, or where there were moments for it where they were given the opportunity to change, mm -hmm. this marks the character arc. And once you've got that kind of arc, that process of change, of growth that the character has gone through, you can understand what's at the core of the story. And that's not always a good story. It's not like from bad to good. For example, The Godfather. Famous example, the character starting off good and then becoming a worse version of themselves. Breaking Bad, being a more modern version of that. Watching a normal human being be cap become capable of these horrible, atrocious things. Mm -hmm. But the idea is you want to find out how your character changes, mark the spots where that change happens, and that's going to reveal the kind of story arc at the core of it. That's how you go a little bit deeper. That's how you do something like this, where you get beyond the surface and maybe kind of defy expectations in a way. Does that make sense? I'm kind of going all over the place with yeah. this. I feel a little scatterbrained today. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, yeah. 
on top of the fact that it was a late night. Yeah. <laughs> just, this is an in- this is really an intense movie, you guys. Yeah. Like this, you know, and and, and we were we were kind of talking about it after we watched it a little bit mm-hmm. and um even a little bit this morning. And yeah, it it's it, it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. So I love this movie. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's a, it's a real beautiful story. So, but yeah, it it, it takes a toll on you. <laughs> yes. Um. So yeah. So intimacy is the core of this story. Not an epic space odyssey. Um. Just looking over my notes. Um. And yeah. So that's what I had for this particular scene yeah. was basically taking the time to understand your story, see what's under the surface. Um. And a beautiful under. Was there anything else you mm-hmm. wanted to say? Yeah. No. Um. No, I just, I wanted to start this off really depressing. So you're welcome. There you go. Yes. We're sad now. Beautiful. All right. (laughs) Enjoy the rest of the episode. Excellent. (laughs) Well, I think I will go on to a slightly happier scene earlier in the film. Let's let's, let's check out the corn scene, the corn Mm. chase. I almost picked that one. Yeah? Yep. It's a good one. It's a good one. (laughs) Whoa. Get in. Get in. Let's go. What about the flat tire? It's an Indian Air Force drone. Solar cells can power an entire farm. Take the wheel phone. thing here this is one of the opening scenes so probably should have started with this one but we, it's, it's one of the opening scenes of the movie and what i want to talk about with this scene is the idea of selecting your sound palette as a composer mm-hmm. so the sound palette is basically the a, a culmination or the accumulation or whatever the word is of different instruments sounds styles etc that you're going to use to make your soundtrack Mm-hmm. You can almost think of it like a painter's palette, right? Before they start painting, they figure out what their base colors are. What do they need to work with? They put it on the palette. They've got those colors. If they need a different color, they can mix it with those. But they, the painter has to take a lot of time to figure out what colors do they need in order to finish the painting. Now, the composer needs to do the same thing. All right. Now, okay, so Hans Zimmer is a masterful kind of sound palette designer because a big part of his career is he talks about how he never likes to do the same thing twice every movie he tries to create something new he wants to do something new um there are other composers who are the exact opposite like john williams who just kind of doubled down on the romantic era orchestral sound and made it his own and he's a master of it 
But the idea that I wanted to point out here was the the way that you can craft a sound palette to help tell a story. And once again, it has to start with understanding your story a little bit better. So what Hans Zimmer talked about with this is that when he realized what the story was going to be about, and he understood the core of the story again, starting with that fable first that allowed him to understand the true story at the center of it, beyond all of like the setting and placement and plot. Um, he knew he wanted something a little more intimate, a little more reverent, something that still had power to it. And that led him to the pipe organ. For him, he says that this movie is a lot about like pushing everything we have to the furthest extent to try and survive. That's another running motif, a running theme of this story, is the fight for survival. And he talks about how everything was pushed to advance. We were working to try and... It, they have to study the black holes. They have to find a way to unify gravity. There's all these things that human beings need to try and push themselves to achieve. And he talks about, at one point, how the pipe organ was the pinnacle of technology in music. The pipe organ was the original synthesizer. The idea is that you've got all these different pipes. and You've got these manuals that are used to control the different pipes. You can flip different switches, decide which ones they're using, but you can morph and change your sound. In the uh, original days, they had dedicated uh, organ pumpers who were responsible for pumping the bellows, getting lots of air in there so the organ could play. Over time, they had the steam organ that was developed, and then nowadays, most of them are electric to some mm -hmm. extent. Um, but he was very deliberate in choosing this instrument because prior to this movie, the organ was not commonly found in film music. Maybe in a couple old like black and white horror films kind of thing, but the organ afterwards was definitely a mainstay. We hear it. We hear the organ associated, especially with space adventures, a lot more commonly now. Now, what was I going with this? Oh yeah, the idea that he can, you can go that extra step level. You can go deeper in with your sound palettes. But the idea that the composer needs to view themselves as a storyteller first. Mm -hmm. All right, as a composer, you are part of a composite art form. All right, you are not just a composer. You are not just a sound designer or a sound engineer. You are brought on to help tell a story, to help enhance a story. And you can do that beyond just the notes you write. You can do that in the instruments that you choose to work with, with the way that you choose to use your instruments, mm -hmm. um, with the way you record your sounds or the sound libraries that you work with or the types of effects that you use to mutate your sounds or to change your sounds. There's all kinds of, there's always a layer deeper you can go to help kind of tell your story. And I just kind of, this is one of the first scenes where we finally get to hear the organ. We hear it hinted at earlier in the intro, but this is the first time where we actually hear the music kind of take off. Um, so I just want to bring that a little attention that you can spend more time on your sound ballads. Yeah, I just I, I laughed when we first started watching because I just I love how I love how Tom just he was willing to just yep. drive off the cliff until his dad was just like, wait, you got to stop. It's just like, man, that's some good training. Talk about attachment. That's what attachment can do. It's very powerful. <laughs> so, right. But with that, um, no, it is a cool scene for sure. The mm -hmm. tension and I don't have many. I don't have much to add to it. Hmm, but, yeah. Awesome. So let's let's kind of move on. Yeah. Right. So I, okay. So it's your turn. I think. Yeah. It is my turn now. And, uh, you know, I don't know that we really need to explore a scene specifically just because I wanted to kind of make a general comment. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the scene that I want to use, I have another scene after this and, and we'll, we'll return to that, but mm-hmm. I want to really speak to this, you know, to kind of a collection of scenes. So we talked a little bit about when we first started, you know, when we first started this one, yeah. that there, there's not much music in the movie. There's yep. actually not much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's very fascinating to me that that's kind of like, that how they like made that decision to kind of, you know, to kind of do that and right? where they put the music is really fascinating. So when you're in space, obviously there's no, yeah. there's no sound, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of those scenes, there isn't really any sound. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So in a lot of those scenes, there's really not any sound. So what that really does, you know, and, and, and I don't know if you had this experience. I definitely had this experience. That was like really like terrible for me. Yeah. Like I really didn't like that, you know, and I'm not saying I don't like it. You know, you know I, I didn't like the experience of being of like seeing action and seeing things happen, but only getting like half of the sensory experience, which I think speaks to why it's so powerful because we as people, right? So we Mm -hmm. have like a sensory system. That's your hearing, that's your smell, that's your, your sight, your taste, um, your, your, your tactile, like you, you can feel things, Mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a couple other ones, but we won't get into those. Um, <laughs> those are a little not not relevant here, but um, you know, in 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 terms of that, there's 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 kind of like a deadening, and so he really does. I think Hans Zimmer does a really good job. And again, I don't know, if, like I I don't know how like the process works of like putting music into a movie. I assume mm-hmm. Hans Zimmer was asked to like compose the music, and then like audio engineers or, or you know editors put put everything in. Yeah, there, yeah to what, it was a team effort. Right. Yeah. According yeah. to what you know. Chris Nolan wanted, but um, yeah, the composer actually. Fun fact: the composer doesn't actually have a lot of control over where the music is placed. Well, it, de- yeah, it depends. Uh, it depends on his relationship with the director and mm-hmm. the editor. But it happens very frequently where the composer will write a piece of music for one scene, but then the music editor and director decide, "Huh, that piece also works for this scene, so right. we're just gonna repeat it." Right. I mean, if you look at Jurassic Park, there is one piece, the piece at the very ending, and the piece when they're flying into the park. Carbon copies, same exact piece of music, just transplanted. Yeah, and that happens a lot. And there are some times where that can get in. You'll hear stories about composers getting in heated arguments. Mm-hmm. Daniel Pemberton being one of them. Daniel Pemberton has said on multiple interviews that he will start arguments with directors who say is like, "This is a good." He's like, "Where they're like, we're happy with this." He's like, "No, no, 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 no. I'm not. We're gonna mm-hmm. you. We're gonna do it this way." And there's another famous story talking about Hans Zimmer where one of the producers are interfering. Hans Zimmer wrote a specific piece for a scene in uh, the movie uh, Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very action-packed scene, but he has a very slow kind of violin solo over the top. The producers hated it. They told him he was ruining their movie. And so they had to do He and they were telling him to change it and everything. It caused a lot of friction. So then they went and tested it in front of an audience, and it worked really, really well. Surprise, um, surprise. <laughs> but the idea is that the, the composer is hired to do a job and that's to right. write the music, but the actual placement of the music that is ultimately the director and editor's final decision. Mm-hmm. So if the composer could write a piece that they think works perfectly for one scene, but find out that it got placed somewhere else. I've actually had that happen to me before. Yeah. I wrote music for a play. Wonderful experience. Really enjoyed it. Still love it. Uh, I just remember showing up for the play and then realizing, Oh, that's not the piece I wrote for this scene. Right. That's not where I placed that. It's like I was, I was very unambiguous about where to place it. I had like the page numbers and line numbers written in the titles of the music, but ultimately the director thought that she liked one of the pieces in that spot better than the piece I had written. 
And then there's a couple of things where I saw here at pieces placed in different spots that I hadn't known. The only thing that kind of got me a little nervous was I found out early on that she had uh, decided to cut one of my pieces in half mm. and just use that piece elsewhere. I'd also had another director who'd done something similar where a director decided that a piece I had wrote needed to be a minute longer. And so he just personally went in, chopped it up in Audacity or GarageBand or something, and this looped it together. I was like, no, 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 please just tell me. If you need another minute of music, tell me. I'll do it. It's like, I'll take it. It's out. last minute. But yeah, so ultimately, though, that's the director's call. Right. The director is the head honcho when it comes to creative decisions. Right. All right. The director has final say on costumes, on acting decisions, mm. on music. They And it depends on how kind of... Basically, like the relationship you have with, with your director. Is your director the kind of person who is collaborative? The best ones usually are uh, because it is a composite art form. Right. And they have to realize that they aren't the most knowledgeable at everything, especially music. It's very rare to find a director who understands music. And so typically, they will defer to you on different kinds of decisions. But there are kind of situations that pop up where you don't get to make that call. I don't know why I went down this tangent. <laughs> yeah, well, we were talking a little bit about because we were talking about kind of like what the how the music was sort of like placed in the movie because that oh, was more right. what yeah, I was yeah. talking. Oh about. yeah, I wasn't yeah. really talking about like specifics. You but... made an offhanded comment about yeah, that's what we do. Uh, yeah, we go on those we go on those trips. Pandas, yeah. But we need to go on those trips because we can't come full circle if we don't run the trip. Very true. So <laughs> with that, <laughs> I you know. All that to kind of say what I was sort of like, you know, kind of guessing at there. So it was essentially, you know, Chris Nolan was was who made the decisions that I'm kind of talking about here in my mm -hmm. notes. But, um, you know, what do we know about space? Not a lot. Right. So we I have. Don't know a lot. <laughs> yeah, I for sure don't. Yeah. Well, we, we, we don't. Right. We all yeah. we have are, you know, uh, the farthest we've gone in space is the moon. So and this is where kind of like thinking of these kind of things. Is that true? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like we've gone, maybe? No, I don't know. human beings have not gone farther than true, that. True, true. I was like, we've sent satellites farther, haven't we? Yeah, we've, we've sent, know. yeah, we've had other stuff go farther. But yeah, we're human ignorant. beings. All right. <laughs> we're not physicists. We're clearly. ignorant. We are ignorant on <laughs> all of this. So we're going to go with like a gut thing. It's like, I agree. We did not go farther. Right. Than we the didn't moon, go farther. Right? The point that I'm trying to make is we've not gone very far. Compared to the yeah. vastness of the universe, we are, we are oh, we're yeah, like nothing. Out. We're not even a speck of dust. So, um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of space. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be filled in with that space. And what I found really fascinating about how the music, if you kind of watch the patterns, and I made some notes yep. afterwards, and I want—I actually think it fits in this really nicely, is it's the process. I think the music almost represents, I don't know if this was intentional, but it almost mm -hmm. represents the process that humans learn something. So the mm -hmm. process in your brain of where you learn. So, for example, all of the, and, and if you pay attention to this in the movie, you'll kind of see all of the scenes where there's like a lot of silence. Yeah. There's usually they're doing something. They're trying yeah. to like figure something out. So like one in particular that I can think of is the first time that they try to dock as they're getting ready to like float into to the wormhole mm -hmm. um, to go over to Saturn. And there's no sound because this is like, you know, I mean, in the movie, people have gone farther, but like, of course, you know, the viewers haven't. We haven't mm -hmm. gone that far. This is new territory. So it's silent. We're kind mm -hmm. of, you know, waiting and there's like suspense and we're just kind of like really focused on like what's happening. And there isn't any sound. There's no sound. There's not even any any sound in the movie. It's just complete yeah. silence. Um, Which that is unusual. There's a lot of reasons yeah. why to cut out the music. 
but to cut out sound effects and dialogue is a very unusual decision. Right. Especially, I mean, e- even though it is accurate to space, oh, yeah. but yeah. like, but still, like that's because I mean, you look at Star Wars. I mean, <laughs> I was about to say that was a Star Wars, Star Trek, like Hollywood has Massive a long history explosions. of yeah, they don't care about the science, but that was a big. I remember that was a core tenet of this movie. They wanted to be as accurate as possible. Yes, exactly. So, and and that's what makes it interesting. So, kind of back what I was saying, um, there isn't a whole lot there. We're like waiting. And like, that's very much what it's like when you're learning something new, right? So when, or you're going oh, through maybe. an experience for the first time, you kind of wait to see what's going to happen. And then once you see what happens, there's like an emotional release of some kind, right? It could be, like really tiny or it could be like massive that's really so i like that so you're saying that throughout the movie every time the characters and the audience were waiting to learn something to Mm -hmm. see how something turned out there was no music there was no music that that i could that i could tell so there's probably examples of of where there were but um from what i could tell when they were kind of encountering something new in space in particular no sound and then it would build Right. So it would build. There would be like a level of emotional response. And then what I found really interesting was after the emotional response, the music would come in and it would oftentimes come in really subtly. Like it wouldn't, you know, I don't I don't remember really any scenes where there was like a thing that we experienced. There was like, you know, the emotional response, whatever that was. And then like just, you know, like just massive. So. I'll let you. I'll let you talk after this one because yeah. I know you got some. But because um, I just I want to make sure this is coherent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the third step in that, which is unique to human beings, is that we create meaning from emotional responses related to experiences. So you experience something, you get that emotional response. We have the ability right here. This is the part of the brain that we use for this. Um, it's well, it's located right here, um, front of the head for those of you who are listening. Yep, fr- front of, front of the head. Yep, your cerebral cortex. If you're if you're an aficionado, um, you know, and and this is the part of our brain where we create stories, we create mm-hmm. meaning. So the story is all connected. All of this stuff is connected, and we see it over and over and over again in these kind of like silent scenes, and then it kind of builds on itself over time. Yeah. So really fascinating stuff. I, I really enjoy that. I love that. that. So you're saying I don't, like, I don't know if it was intentional. I doubt it was. But it's something you noticed. But it was something, yeah. It, you never it, know. It just happens. And so, because that could be really cool, because I love that idea, because you talk about, like, when when the audience and the characters are both waiting to find something out, mm-hmm. right? They've tried something, and now they're trying to figure out what happened, what's right. going to happen. There's no music. And that works so beautifully, because mm-hmm. one of the psychological functions of music, so there are three functions of music, psychological, physical, and technical. I've talked mm-hmm. about them on my channel, but the psychological function has to do with two main things. Mm-hmm. Enhancing the emotions of the audience, and, interestingly enough, keying them into information that the characters don't have. Yep. So the music can tell you about the intentions a character has. You can find out that this new happy character is not to be trusted because suddenly the music is dark when they appear. Right. Uh, you can find out that this really gr- like gruff kind of character might be related to a hero because you can hear the hero's theme playing quietly in the background. There's all kinds of things that you can use to clue in the audience about information. That's one of the responsibilities. That's one of the functions is for the aud- for the music to help tell the audience what's going on when the mm. characters don't know. So to deliberately deprive the audience of right. music in these scenes, you're forcing them to be just as out of the loop as the characters. Mm-hmm. You are forcing them to kind of sit in that experience 
and wait. Yeah. So that's a brilliant way to kind of. I just, I'm geeking out on that. I, I want to rewatch cool? the movie now to see if that fits. Just to watch it. Well, because, I mean, and if you think about it, think about this podcast, right? So, like, think yeah. about, you know, me and Steven are right. talking to you guys. and um, I like to think we're talking with them. I like to think we are, too. Yeah, it's very nice. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking, you know, we're, we're all kind of talking together and we're learning about this. If, if you were to, if you know, in the middle of you driving or, you know, walking or, or if you are watching with us, um, we just, like, looked at you and stopped talking. For like an extended period of time, <laughs> even that just that little second yeah. was—it's like, what's going to happen, right? Like you're 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 keying into those senses, right? So when you have yeah. a multi-sensory experience, mm -hmm. you don't have to work as hard to get all the information. When you only have part of it, right? You have to like so when you're listening to us, you know, to our voice versus listening and watching us, you you have to really you know you have to really key in. Depending on how, I mean, a lot of stuff, but you know, it, it, it could be variable depending on your your hearing sensitivity and stuff like that, which I won't get into. But but the point is, is the less the you know the less information you're getting, the more you're gonna seek, right? So we're creating like that, that space. So we create that space. You're gonna fill it with something, and that's what happens in the movie. They're gonna fill it with whatever you know whatever happens. I like that because there's a lot of traditional reasons to deprive a film of music. Mm -hmm. So one of the big ones being there's a lot of dialogue and you don't want the music to compete with it. Right. Another one is to just increase the realism which you could argue was another reason why they did it here. Um there's lots of big reasons we can do it. Another one is just the scene doesn't have a lot of emotion in it so you don't need it. Right. You don't need the music to enhance those emotions. So there's all kinds of reasons that you can kind of deprive a scene of music but to be deliberate in that way mm -hmm. to deprive your audience of a source of information that's just kind of brilliant to right. force them <laughs> into the same situation that the audience is in, that the characters are in mm -hmm. because you're right in all those scenes when they're docking uh when they're starting to spin when they're doing all kinds of stuff in the film where there is no music there's no sound whatsoever there's nothing we're just kind of what you sitting see. in it. yeah we're just sitting in that silence with the characters mm -hmm. and that's that is very unnerving throughout yeah. the film it happens frequently throughout the film and i just really i, I really like that i am geeking out over that i didn't <laughs> notice that at all yeah <laughs> and okay so l let me kind of re it's just for myself i love kind of learning this stuff from you yeah um there were those three steps you said where mm -hmm. we are basically there is a stimulus or we are mm -hmm uh presented with something new yeah all right so then the next step is basically we learn what's going to happen mm -hmm. with it all right so we get information about what happens from that stimulus and then the third step was we create an emotional understanding of it was that correct Did I mess it up? um i would say we have this we have the event so we're right. gonna really break it down we Hold have on, the, I'm this down yeah right. event yep we have the event we have the emotion and then we create the meaning Based on based oh, on the combination oh, of yep. those first two, I, yeah, I combined those last two into one. Yeah, and that's very easy to do. Yeah, because we are not typically we don't think that way, right? Mm -hmm. So this is and this is what I do a lot with people, is emotions aren't inherent to anything. I mean, they can be sure. Like yeah. you can, you know, there's like tendencies where, like, obviously, like if I smack Stephen across the face, he's probably not going to be very thrilled about that. Probably not. Um, I'd yeah. be confused as well. I'd be confused. Lots of things that probably would come up that you know. You could probably predict, yeah. Um, myself and him as as as, as well. Um, <laughs> but all that to say, um, you know, that that doesn't mean that doing those types of things are inherent to only one type of emotion. Everybody experiences yeah. things differently, so the emotion is separate from the meaning that we create by it. 
right? That's so fascinating. Yeah. Because, yeah, going with your example of slapping, if I said something really out of pocket mm-hmm. about, I don't know, your family or something, yeah. and you slap me, my reaction probably wouldn't be anger. It'd be probably like, yeah, I deserve that. Right. I should probably apologize. There's a lot of it's, contextual things yeah, there. It's the yeah. same event. You slapping me across the face, mm-hmm. but a different emotional experience and a different meaning. From exactly. That. I. That's yeah. why I really specify, you know, to pull the emotion out of it and really look at that because it is a thing. It's a thing on its own, right? So there's, you know, depending on who you ask, there's six between four and six core emotions. Depends on who you ask. I'll just give you all six just because. So we've and and this doesn't include baseline. So contentness. I think I got four. Can I get four? Can I guess four of them? Yeah, I guess four. I'm trying to think about what the CMA dictated. Basically, yeah. happiness. Happiness, yeah. Sadness. Yep. Anger. Yep. And then calm. Is that not one of them? Because I know in the 80s, not, that was one of them. Yeah, not calm. So calm is considered baseline. So that's like, huh. if you think of like a circle, like calm an, is the yep. bullseye. Calm is uh, right in the middle. The others are on the outside. So instead of calm, uh, worry. Or anxiety. Worry. Yeah. Ah, anxiety. Now, yeah. depending on who you ask, I would tend to kind of go this route too, just because the more the better. Yep. Um, you've also got surprise, so like yeah. positive anxiety, yeah. basically, and disgust, which is like another like flavor of anger. So mm. anger is very much like, you know, the difference between anger and disgust would be like, kind of like what it sounds like. So anger is like, uh, it's a little more violent. Disgust is very much like. Uh, you know, like, yeah. keep it away from me kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas anger is more, like, action-oriented. Or it okay. tends to be more action-oriented. So Interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that idea of removing the emotion and, and looking at that first. Because that is really at the core of the film composer's job. Yes. Our number one priority, and I said this in the last episode, was our number one priority, our number one responsibility is to enhance the emotions. Mm-hmm. If you fail to do that, your film score will not succeed. It just won't tell the story. On the contrary, if that's all you do, the only thing is you write a completely new piece of music for every single scene, but you hit the emotions. Some people might like it if they're like really emotional. It'll work. And that's fine. It'll work still. It'll still function. It won't be like a brilliant soundtrack, but it will function. Like hitting the emotions of each scene is like the bare minimum Mm -hmm. necessary. The minimal viable product. If you don't have it, it's not viable. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But if you have it, you've at least got the bare minimum to function. Right, exactly. Now, the really cool thing is being able to understand those emotions. And we kind of talked about this in the last video about how it's important to play to the emotions of your audience. Mm -hmm. So often, it's very easy for early composers, even seasoned composers, to fall into the trap of, oh, the character is sad. Now, (laughs) I need to write sad music. Or this character is laughing. I need to make happy music. Or this Mm -hmm. character is scared. Whatever. Or you play to the emotions of the character. But that's not what you're going for. Right. What you want to do is play to the emotions of the audience. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to detach the emotion from the of the characters. You have to detach the emotions being experienced from the characters and get at that third step, which you were talking about, yes. meaning. Mm-hmm. So almost so you talk about event, emotion, and meaning. Mm-hmm. I'd almost say like to adapt that for film scoring, mm-hmm. you would need to have a fourth step or fifth step, maybe. Mm-hmm. Event, emotion, meaning. Mm-hmm remove the original emotion, <laughs> analyze the meaning, and then find a new emotion for it. Right. Because you've got to find, you've got to go beyond the emotions on screen. Yes. And I'm, I'm wishing I could come up with an example for Interstellar at the moment, but I'm just kind of thinking about the example from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, mm-hmm. where Aunt Marge blows up. Mm-hmm. All right. We, the event, Aunt Marge blows up. The emotions, fear and anger from the Dursleys, mm-hmm. anger and disgust in Harry, yep. panic in Aunt Marge. 
we have to remove all of those, mm -hmm. right? We have to find the meaning of the scene, all right? So we find the meaning of the scene. The meaning is basically Harry lost control, mm -hmm. all right? He lost control. He blew up his aunt. She's going all over the place. <laughs> and the meaning is he's just broken Wizarding Law. Now he's got to run away. So there's a lot of ways you could do this. But when you attach a new emotion to that scene, mm -hmm. like, all right, so yeah, there's a lot of anxiety, anger that could be played here. But we'll push that off to the next scene when he's dealing with the consequences. Right, right now, living in the moment of the event, this is kind of funny. Mm -hmm. right? this, is, this is vindication on yeah. behalf of the character. Uh, we feel vindicated because she was an evil git and we would like to see her get her comeuppance. And so it's funny. Mm -hmm. We enjoy it. I'm trying to think of an example from Interstellar, but I feel like, I don't know. I'm too, um, these are very different movies. Yeah. Right? I would say a good example from Interstellar would be yeah. that docking scene. So, oh, yeah? you know, we're, this is the first time that we see them all go into space. This is new for us. This is new for Cooper. Cooper's never been in space. Yep. He even said, I've never even made it past the stratosphere. None of them have. Yeah, exactly. So, or that's true. Yeah, actually they're, cause they were all physicists. Yep. Um, but, uh, so when they go to dock, it's like really, really quiet and we're mm -hmm. kind of like waiting. And then we see the thing happen. There's kind of like a release of emotion. Like, oh, okay. Gotcha. Like we, you know, we did it. Like, cause it was like, it was suspenseful. They were, you know, he needed to get it like perfect. Mm -hmm. They do this a few times throughout the movie. It needs to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, like they're going to have problems and they won't be able to, yeah. you know, depressurize correctly and all that. And then you kind of hear, and that's the one that I'm thinking of, maybe it's not, 100% accurate because I didn't just watch it. I'm just like thinking about it. But there was kind of like a, I kind of do like this, but there was kind of. It, it, wiggle your fingers? Yeah, I just wiggle my fingers. Yeah. Right. Um, kind of, the music kind of like looks like yeah. that, where it feels to me like, um, like Hans Zimmer is kind of using. Uh, the music is oscillating. It, it is. Yeah. It's very like ethereal and it's like, but it's like calming. Yeah. It's not, it's not like dissonant, like, like my first scene was yeah. or anything like that. So, and then, and, and that's to kind of signify, okay. We've had the release. We've okay. We did it. We got a we got a beautiful thing we're gonna do here, mm -hmm. and this is the first step in us doing that. So revel in that space, revel in that you know in that meaning right there. So I like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's there's your there's your crash crash course on how you learn things. <laughs> that's I, pretty much that's pretty much uh, pr pretty much the process. I love that. So mm -hmm. event happens. You have an emotional response to the event, and then you make meaning of that response. Exactly. Now. There are a lot of ways you can mess with this. And I will continue to use this going forward and I can kind of show you how you can mess with it. So trauma is, you know, because we talked about it before, trauma makes this more complicated. All sorts of things that happen or that can happen can make this more complicated. The emotion will complicate the meaning. I see that. And I imagine if you got that, like, uh, if you had a meaning, a preconceived meaning before the event, mm -hmm. then that could also, that can also change the emotion. If you have a preconceived idea of maybe like whether you're supposed to like something. Mm -hmm. uh, you see this a lot in people, especially like video games. Yep. Like um, you see it a lot of time where people have a preconceived idea of, I don't know where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways I could go with it. I'm yeah. trying to pick one. Uh, but basically the idea that you have an event, then you have a meaning, a preconceived bias of what that event means. Mm -hmm. And because you have that preconceived bias, you automatically assign an emotion experience that that, that's yeah. that's fascinating mm -hmm. i love that yeah. I say, think this of it is... as like a circle yeah. they can all and it's a circle that can go both ways so, right. so all can... of it can affect each yeah. other that's interesting mm -hmm. event emotion meaning i love yeah. that i'm gonna have to sit with that for a little bit and see how else i can apply that mm -hmm. uh to film scoring but i like that let's yeah. let's but, move on though we're kind of going off the deep say, end there's like... there, there's the one that took us a minute we knew yep. we were gonna be 
we were going to spend a second on this right? one. So I like it. Yep. I wasn't expecting that to be the one. Either, so. All right. <laughs> so was. what was the, so that was the uh, docking. That was the collection. Okay. So that, that was, was your collection, collection of, of scenes of music, with yeah. no music or lack of music. Yeah. Right. So you can go next. All right. Awesome. So I only got one left because mm-hmm. we kind of shared one, but mine is no time for caution. All right. And this is kind of going away from the meaning and just kind of a really cool demonstration of a completely different style of composing yeah. from Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm-hmm. Let's check it out. For Cooper's life, this is about all mankind. There is a moment. It is nuts. See that? (laughs) Yep. Perfect example. Exactly what I was talking about. Using her fuel to analyze the endurance of spin. What are you doing? Knocking. Endurance rotation is 67, 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match our spin with the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No, it's necessary. She's got no heat shield. Hey, she ready? Ready. Cooper, this is no time for caution. Alright, we'll stop right here. Because this can go for a little bit. And I've already got what I wanted to talk about. Hmm. Incredible scene, though. Um, and I basically, I wanted, this isn't so much about the movie as much as it's just about, like, the difference in composing styles. So the last video that we at least recorded, I don't know what release order we're going to put these out in, but the last video that we recorded was John Williams, mm-hmm. Prisoner of Azkaban. This is Hans Zimmer. Both of them, arguably, some of the greatest who have ever done it. All right? If not the greatest who have ever done it. But they have very different styles. John Williams is very much... The Romantic Era inspired mm. composer, very lush melodies, lush harmonies, classical arrangements and orchestration, beautiful sounds. Hans Zimmer is much more a product of kind of modern music, that modern uh, era. In fact, this right here is a perfect example of the use of minimalism in music, in film mm. score music. Uh, minimalism being the idea that you work with, as the name suggests, a minimal number of ideas. So where where John Williams will have a beautiful theme, he'll develop that theme, and he'll move into a counter theme, a B theme, if you will, then return to his A theme, and then move them in and out. What we have here is a no less impactful piece of music, but it's basically just a loop. It's a repeating motivic idea, repeated over and over and over and over again, and yet it still has an emotional impact. And I want to talk about why. All right, so the reason why minimalism can work so well in film music, well, one of the biggest ones is that even if the music is repeating, the scene is still unfolding. 
Mm-hmm. All right. And so the scene gives us new information. It's sort of like playing the same melody on top of a changing chord progression. Play the melody once, then you shift the chords, play it again. Same melody, new context. As the scene continues forward, the music is also given new context, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Again, part of being a composite art form, of me working with more than just music. Now, the things that work really well for this, if you want to try it yourself and go with a minimalistic kind of score to work with simple ideas like this, Two really important ideas are the ideas of incremental complexity and incremental size. The idea being that every few times, and you'll notice this in this piece, he'll establish an idea. He'll repeat it a couple times. And just when it's on the verge of getting boring or overly repetitive, he'll add a new layer. That's called incremental complexity. One layer at a time, or maybe two layers at a time. The idea is you're repeating the same idea over and over again just adding a new idea each time to keep it fresh. Mm-hmm. Because even though you're repeating the same idea, you're still getting something new, some new element, whether it's the string players smacking their strings or the instruments with a pencil, because that's what the ticking noise is. Uh, or it's the bass pedals on the organ finally entering, or the ostinato on the organ entering, and not just the pedal point. Um, there's all kinds of different layers that are adding, each of them repetitive, yeah. but each of them, when they enter, new and fresh and that's the most important tool that you can have to make a lot of mileage out of a simple idea so if you're not good at writing melodies or you're not don't feel confident in creating lush like uh interesting harmonic decisions of modulating and stuff what you can do is come up with a simple idea that you like and just repeat it over and over again and each time it feels like it's about to get boring add a new layer now the next thing he does is rather than just getting super super complex Every time something new happens, every time the energy of the scene pumps up. So, for example, when he says match the spin of the, uh, I think it's called the Endeavor. Uh, I might be, the space station. Mm -hmm. Match the spin of the space station and get underneath it so we can lock in. And he says, that's impossible. He's like, no. He's like, yes, but it's necessary. Boom. We hear the music gets bigger and that's incremental size. So that's another thing you can do. If you don't want to add a new layer. For whatever reason, you think it might be getting too complex or you're just running out of ideas or you just want to stretch out ideas a bit longer. Incremental size increases or decreases basically says, all right, you're not going to add a new layer, but you're going to double a layer. So maybe instead of having adding a counter melody, you're just going to double the melody with another group of instruments. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're going to double the bass line. That's particularly powerful. Lots of people love to double the bass line because it gives it extra weight power and impact to your sound. So sometimes you can use something called a sub bass, which was originally used on the pipe organ. Uh, with the idea of like taking your bass line and then playing that an octave lower, doubling it an octave lower, which was very difficult to do at the time and still kind of difficult if you're trying to play acoustic instruments. But that goes into the sub bass frequencies, all right? Somewhere between like the 20 hertz to 65 hertz range. Very, very lowest frequencies that human beings can hear. So that line's not going to stick out. You're not going to notice the sound so much, but you're going to feel it. These are the kind of frequencies that shake the bleachers. They shake the room that you're in. Um, So the idea that you could... So basically, to summarize, two beautiful strategies used here to take a very simple idea and make it incredibly emotionally impactive is incremental complexity. Every time it's about to get boring or too repetitive, you add a new layer. Or, contrastingly, incremental size, where you're not adding a new layer, but you're adding more instruments to a pre-existing layer. Typically, melody, 
baseline or chords mm -hmm. in that order. Melody and bass, well, melody and bass line are kind of interchangeable. Chords are the least important of those three, though, if you're looking for power and size. Uh, but yeah, so I wanted to kind of point that out rather than, these are just completely opposite approaches. John Williams is the very lush kind of orchestral arranger. He does very classical strategies for keeping his melodies interesting and developing, whereas Hans Zimmer is kind of a master of this minimalistic approach. Uh, other composers who do this are like Joe Hisaishi, Daniel Pemberton. Well, they'll take a simple idea and just really show the beauty of that idea. And Hans Zimmer talks about that a lot. He says that the idea of taking a small idea, taking a small little tune that he comes up with and seeing how much he can stretch it out, how how much can he find inside that tune. Um, another kind of example of a, well, I mean, it wasn't technically minimalism at the time, but Beethoven did this. The famous fate motif, bum, 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 bum. That entire melody is just that one little idea moving up and down. Bum, 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 I don't know if that's the same one. I don't know. I'm tired. Neither of us got a lot of sleep last night. But the idea is like, well, the idea is like that. I know that. The famous fate motif is a very repetitive, that was very common in German music at the time, mm -hmm. because music is very heavily influenced by the linguistics. Yep. All right. So German does not have a lot of vowels. All right. What it has is a lot of consonants in its sounds. So unlike French or Italian, where you can hold out a vowel, mm -hmm. oh, going to like go all over the place, like a melisma, one vowel, move it all over multiple pitches. That's not as easy to do for a German singer. So German music, since singing is like the most core fundamental form of music, mm -hmm. really developed to be much more rhythmic in nature. And so that's why lots of German music was much more heavily motivic than, say, the Italian composers or the mm -hmm. French composers. Um, and so, obviously... Hans Zimmer being a German composer. I'm not saying this is why, mm -hmm. but it's really cool to see that he kind of carries on that tradition of motivic development, taking a single idea and stretching it out to see what you can do with it. Mm -hmm. But awesome. So yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I want to say. This, like, like I said, had less to do with the story, more about composing techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that's interesting. I was actually, I never thought about it in terms of like linguistics, but. Oh yeah. Linguistics um, have a massive impact on yeah. the development of music. It makes sense. Well, and I mean, you know, like I said in the last one, this is this is why I say everything is connected, you guys. Like this yeah. is it, it, this is another example of that. And we'll, you know, because your your language and your sensory experience, right? So like I talk about mostly our sensory experience, mm -hmm. but then there's also other components that mm -hmm. you can like kind of jump into. This is just one avenue you can yeah. take to find what you're trying to do. Which is really, really cool. Right. There's lots of different angles. Which is why art is so cool. Because it it's is. an expression of who you are. It's an right. expression of us, right? As a species, as a person, as a universe even. So mm -hmm. that's pretty cool. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's also an expression of the culture. Because mm -hmm. self-expression was not really a common thing in art until the Romantic period. That's another right. kind of little historical fun fact. The Mozart would never, ever have considered writing a piece of music to portray an emotion that he's experiencing. Mm -hmm. That just was not the zeitgeist. Uh, that was not the way of doing things for the classical period. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until the Romantic era with composers like Beethoven and uh, uh, Hector Berlioz that, uh, is it Hector Berlioz or Franz Berlioz? I think it's Hector Berlioz. Mm -hmm. uh, but with the Symphonie Fantastique, the idea that these were stories and emotions and the music meant something. Mm 
Mm-hmm. In the classical period, music was music. It yep. didn't mean anything. It was beautiful. It was to be treasured, but it didn't have any deeper meaning. It was just music. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the Romantic era. I mean, there was, there was music could be used to symbolize things, let's say like opera and stuff. Right. But a symphony wasn't written to tell a story. The symphony was the symphony. Mm-hmm. The opera was a different thing. It was a composite art form. But music itself didn't have or did not need inherent meaning. Yeah. Whereas the Romantic era, that was a very big shift. It was the music became a reflection of the artist for the first time yeah. in the Romantic era. Well, and what's interesting about that is <sighs> I'm going to kind of like rip all this down. What's interesting about that actually is that the meaning was always there. Mm-hmm. It's just that the intention wasn't right. So the reflection of the person, like you can't create music and not have it. You can't create an art form and not have it express you in some way. You can do whatever you can to mimic somebody else's stuff, but even the mimicking is an expression of what you're trying to do. I don't know if I would agree. I'd say nowadays, yes. Mm -hmm. But that has the predisposition of uh, of our, talking about that event, emotion, and meaning. Mm -hmm. This is a kind of an example of the event, emotion, and meaning being flipped. This is for new information, though. True, but everyone has new information at some point. Music at some point in everyone's life is new information. But for the meaning, in our culture, we go off at the very beginning believing that music means something. Believing that music is an expression of something. Because our culture expresses that. However, prior to the Romantic period, that was not the case. Music was not expressive. Some of of the pieces that we view now as being some of Mozart's happiest pieces oh that's bouncy that's fun that's wonderful they were written at the darkest moments in his life why because he was commissioned to write them mm-hmm. like at the moments where his children were dying he was sick his wife was sick he was in the poorhouse. some of his happiest symphonies were written because he was com- he was commissioned to write these pieces that can be the meaning though yeah right that can be the thing that kind of causes you know that kind of puts us in this position right yeah. so when you look at when you look at art, you know, and, and you look at any form of human expression, there always is a reason for it, right? And this mm-hmm. is why, I mean, I, I just, I really like this stuff too, but like, yeah. you know, this is, this is why I really like music for, for me, you know, yeah. I have a very personal attachment, you know, you know, yeah. my personal yeah. attachment to it. Um, but, uh, you know, my own personal attachment, um, I, you know, I kind of use that to sort of look at other people's. And, you know, especially those of us right now, I would say we're very privileged to be able to say that we can see the meaning mm-hmm. because we don't have to be commissioned to write things in order to be, in order to, you know, have to, yeah. so we don't have to create something, you know, we can choose our meaning versus like the meaning isn't kind of already ascribed. Does that make sense? I get what you're going with. Because uh, I'm looking yeah. at like art as a whole. Yeah. So yeah, because yeah. My, my, and this is an argument, this isn't like. This is nece- this isn't necessarily based in like anything other than kind of like what I know. You know, I'm not a I'm a musician, but I'm coming at it from a very so my perspective. The intention of making it basically. So you're saying like mm-hmm. if he wasn't commissioned, he would still write the music because it meant something to him. I, I don't know that I would. I'm not. I don't know that I'm saying that. What I'm saying is even if the expression isn't something he organically came up with, he came up with it. True. Right. So even if he, like, even yeah. if I were to say, okay, Stephen, I want you to write me. I want you to write me a specific type of music 
in this, you know, in, in, in this key, it needs to portray happiness. Yeah. Um, it needs to be bouncy. It needs to be, but it only needs to be two and a half minutes long. Mm -hmm. Now, what you're going to do first off is you're going to make a choice. Do I want to do that or not? Right. So I think we want to look at kind of all of that and sort of see, mm -hmm. you know, what, and I, I don't want to get too far off, but, um, but I think that this is, you know, connected because, you know, how inherent is meaning? This is a philosophical question that we, we don't really know the answer to. Like we inherently oh, yeah. have this, like ideas. This but, could be a whole thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, but well, yeah, let me, let me, let me just finish. So, yeah, of course. um, so, you know, I could, I could tell you, I would like you to do this for me. Right. So, you can't, I can give you those parameters, just like I could give everybody watching those same parameters, say a hundred people, I give it to them. I would get 101 different pieces of music that mm -hmm. are, that are telling me different stories that are telling mm -hmm. me different things that are, you know, they're all run through the same, the same, you know, the same, uh, standards and the same <laughs> filter, basically we'll call it a filter for now when well, they're all run through the same filter, but every person who does that, would get, I mean, they wouldn't all come up with the same thing. Right? No, of course not. Yeah. But we also live in a, in a period of time where music is associated with meaning. Right. Where music is meant to have meaning. So, I mean, you think about the common example of overanalysis. It's like the curtains were blue mm -hmm. in lit class. And the teacher tells you that that was a sign of the artist's great suffering. Like, no, that, that's not what that meant. The artist's <laughs> like, no, I just, they were just blue. And so. That's but, not what they meant. As far as we know. Yes. Yeah, but it's true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But the idea that usually the curtains are just blue. But we live in a society and a culture that expects meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's why we overanalyze is we look for the meaning because we expect that there is meaning there. So what I'm saying is that was a very romantic. We have that because of the romantic era. Yeah. That was a very new idea. In fact, that was rejected for the longest time. Every new era of music, like the great composers like Debussy. Debussy was hated in academic circles he was seen as a Which heretic i like him so much right he was viewed as a heretic <laughs> he was viewed as a threat there were like uh, conservatories and schools that said there is no greater threat against the future of our students than cloud debussy and his music and his dangerous ideas uh now we recognize him as one of the great masters mm -hmm. who is single-handedly i'd say maybe has some of the biggest impact on film scoring as a non-films composer uh Massive impact on the way we do things, and the way we view tone color in particular, and the way that timbre and sound palettes can be used to tell the story. That's largely mm -hmm. from his influence. Yeah. Uh, but prior to him, well, like in his age, that was fought against. And the, mm -hmm. the idea of having meaning in music was similarly fought. When Hector Berlioz premiered his uh, Symphony Fantastique, he had printed off pamphlets detailing the story the music told. Yeah. That was scandalous. Yeah. The idea that he had ignored symphonic structure to tell a story or maybe he'd even been ignorant of symphony symphonic structure and it's not written it properly but told that he had a story that he meant it to have that it wasn't just the audience coming in to enjoy the music but now they had to they were forced to say that this music is meant to mean something that was scandalous in the period mm -hmm. and now we live in a very post-romantic era where that's just kind of the given right um so we look for meaning in things. I don't know why we got down this tangent. Yeah, well, but, we yeah. well, and we got down the tangent because yeah. we were we were talking about it, you know, kind of in in the movie and what what it sort of what it means. But um, you well, know, we talk about the linguistics impact, right? Yeah, yeah we were we were looking at different angles, and and I, I think where we're kind of getting stuck is I am looking, I'm ascribing meaning to the reason 
for the art, yeah. the reason for the expression, mm-hmm. right? Whereas I think maybe you're ascribing, I think you're ascribing, you tell me if I'm wrong, you're ascribing the meaning more to the intention behind what's kind of, you know, cause well, it's kind of like the same thing. Yeah, your your right. intention is like, I will write this to be meaningful versus this is not meaningful. What's mm-hmm. interesting about the, it, yeah. I mean, first off, am I right or not? Not entirely. <laughs> okay. But I, I also don't know how I would put it. I just know it doesn't it doesn't feel right. right? No. But my, my main idea is that so my main point that I was trying to get my basically my whole point is all of this is that the idea that music is supposed to have meaning mm-hmm. that's a newish idea. That's only the past couple hundred years. It's like from the you know, like there's a reason for that late seventeen hundreds. Yeah. yeah, but mm-hmm. the idea of uh, uh, so basically the idea that music inherently has meaning because we want it to have meaning Mm -hmm. that's a new idea and it is technically possible to write music devoid of meaning now if it's devoid of meaning on your behalf the audience is going to supply meaning to it because for example think about uh so academic exercises so well so then is it devoid of meaning then i would say it could be devoid of meaning on behalf of the composer on behalf of the composer so i'm saying so what i'm saying is that the composer can write music without meaning in mind where they just write the piece of music and there is no meaning for them in that music but can you write the piece of music ah, sorry i don't mean to interrupt no. you, but yeah. can you write the piece of music with devoid of meaning is that not meaningful no i don't think it is you're choosing to not write music with you're choosing to write music without meaning i don't think there's it, no meaning behind that i don't think that i don't think you're choosing i think it's the other way around i think adding meaning to the music is a requirement that that is the action. Like the default is not to write music without with meaning. The default is to write music without meaning. Right. Because you can write music without meaning, but you have to choose to have a deeper meaning to music, a deeper story or emotion you're trying to capture. Yeah. So for example, when I was my short stint in music school, there were lots of pieces I wrote without meaning. I was told write a piece in rounded binary form for X instrumentation. I said let's do it. I sat down. I did a perfectly just functional chord progression. Had no meaning for me, no meaning. I just sat down there and I needed to do this fast. So I wrote a functional chord progression. I wrote a simple functional melody on top of it. I arranged it for the instruments that were done. I wrote it in the in the format it was in. I had no meaning for that. But the teacher would go and say, this is such a fun, bouncy tune. This is a beautiful, like a happy, I can tell this is a very happy piece for you. I'm thinking, not really. I just needed to get this over with. And that's where I'm stuck. Yeah. That's the meaning for me. I just need mm-hmm. to get this over with. There's something there. Okay, so I think that's just where we disagree. I think that's where we're getting stuck. Yeah, I, yeah. It, I, I won't go into it right now because that's a whole other bet. That's a no, whole yeah. other... We've gotten so off track. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, so basically I you're saying... helpful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at the very least, I hope it's unattainable. Uh, yep. uh, but the idea that I have no idea if anyone's <laughs> even going to listen to this. But, no, so basically... If you made it this far, congratulations. You're you a real a one. On the back. Thank you. You are now on the inside circle of one of our uh one of our long-winded discussions we do of this things too that often. we we disagree on we yeah <laughs> long-winded discussions of things that ultimately don't matter at the, but, at the end of the day yeah, yeah. but yeah so basically it's where we're getting lost out it's the idea that i i view meaninglessness as having no meaning whereas yeah. you view meaninglessness as itself being a form of I, I essentially believe everything has inherent meaning of course everything yeah. does I believe things have inherent value, but not necessarily inherent meaning. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So we need to move on. Yes, we do. Um, <laughs> that was my last one. No oh, time for caution. Beautiful. I have one more. 
one and a half because I have one that's not necessary. It just it's an idea. We can we can decide if we're yeah. gonna if we're gonna talk about it or not. But let's go to the scene where Anne Hathaway, her character, Doctor Brand, Doctor Brand. Yep, she first meets. Um, she first gets to have a handshake with the fourth dimension. That's right, fifth, the beings of higher dimensions. The fifth dimension. That's right. Yeah. How they decided that they were fifth dimension beings, I don't remember. I don't know. Yeah. They just kind of assumed that they were fifth dimension. They skipped the fourth. I like that. Maybe five is a nice rounded number. Actually, because we're oftentimes told we are trapped in the fourth dimension, so it takes a higher being to see the fourth dimension. Oh. Yeah. So that would be my guess. You just explained <laughs> it to me. But I could be wrong. I'm on an astrophysics kick right now, so it's kind of like fascinating to me. I am not, but I'm still fascinated. All right, let's watch this. Yep. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. Here we go. Excellent. Yeah, that's a fun one. <laughs> All right. So, what were your thoughts? All right. Well, um, this is much heavier looking at it the second time. Yeah. <laughs> As, you know, when you first, oh, you have the additional yeah. context at the end right. of the film. When you first watch yep. it, you're just kind of like, cool. She's shaking hands. She's like touching like the space time fabric. Yep. Um, she's actually, you know, again, spoiler alert, if you have, I would hope that you've watched the movie if you were, if you were watching or listening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, she's actually shaking future Matthew McConaughey's hand. Yep. Cooper. Um, yep. Future Cooper. So, uh, th- there, there's a, there's a lot here. Um, first off, I, I kind of want to start with sort of like the lack of, you know, there's no music in the scene, right? Or I, I don't know. It's very subtle. I was going to say, it sounds very, yeah, it, it, I was wondering, that's kind of why I was like listening real tough. Or real hard in there, but um, you know, I was. It, it's not very pronounced. It's no. more like, what's the sensory experience going on? We hear the buzzing, we hear the, the alarms, we we hear like the you know, like the rumbling of the engine and like mm-hmm. everything kind of shaking because we're going into like this is uncharted territory, unknown territory. And yeah. we we, as you mentioned earlier, we like the characters mm-hmm. are waiting to see what's about yeah. to happen. We don't know what's happening, so mm-hmm. we're very in the sensory experience. Yes. Um, this is anxiety invoking because, 
A, we don't know what's happening. B, there, there's a lot of sensory stuff going on. Mm -hmm. So this is almost sensory overload. So sensory overload can almost be used in a similar sense as like sensory like deprivation. Deprivation, right. Um, it's easy. We don't know what's happening. Like, and, but you know, but you're like super keyed in. So this is, this is kind of a nice push and pull compared to like my first, to my last, uh, my last point. Um, you know, so kind of, kind of watching. And, and I think if you keep going, I want to say she talks about how this is the first handshake or something like yeah. that. And then there's like beautiful music for a second. Um, so that was actually the first time I was going to mention kind of the stimulus emotion event yeah. or meaning, you know, uh, 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 sequence there so you know it, it's it, it was really cool and um i actually wrote down that i forgot so this is actually how children learn right humans they're yeah, humans and children both different yeah. um <laughs> adults and children both learn the same way but this is kind of how it feels when you're experiencing something so new and so like big right mm -hmm. um it's almost it's like it's a very i uh, we, we want to call it like what's the word it's like um it's like, I mean, awe-inspiring maybe, but like when you're a child, everything is huge, right? Because you're so small. And now mm -hmm. we're in space, everything is massive because yeah. we're so tiny. So we're experiencing this all as like a curious child to some degree. Now that can mean that like emotions are kind of running all over the place. Because when you're a kid, you don't know how to emotionally react to anything because you don't have anything. You don't have like those parts of your brain. There's like, no precedent. Yeah, there isn't a precedent, right? You're creating the precedent. So we now have, you know, we're, we're, we're watching adults essentially react as children to this thing that could like, like have power over them. This is a higher being. This is a fourth, yeah. what they believe to be a fifth dimension, a fifth dimensional being who is telling them, hey, you're on the right track here. Now, what's interesting with this, and I kind of want to use this to segue into talking about the... Uh, the idea of, you know, love or connectivity as a dimension, which I thought was just, that was just so cool. Like, right. that was such a cool, like, because you talk, you talk about, like, you know, you talk about, like, taking, like, the observable, like, universe, our narrative of the universe, yep. and then, like, our sensory experience, and they're all kind of touching at this, like, intersection. Yeah. And that's where I kind of feel like this description is. So the idea here, right, is that, you know, love is the next dimension up. Or rather, our our understanding of love. Right. It's, is, our, it's exactly. a, that love to us is our subconscious understanding of a fifth dimension or like a higher dimension that we can't understand. So we I believe, can't perceive. So that I believe they said that it was like, is the idea of it was a dimension that connected specific individuals mm -hmm. that we couldn't perceive, but our subconscious understanding of it was as love. Yes, exactly. So th this is really cool. I do a lot of, you know, attachment work and stuff like that. And I've already kind of like thought through this just sort of anecdotally. So it was cool to see it represented here. Really cool. Um, the application of it. Uh, so, We've got the vastness of the universe and the vastness mm -hmm. of space. And Christopher Nolan does a really good job of showing how that fifth dimension, no matter how far like displacement or distance wise you are from another person, you are connected to them. Yeah. You are connected to them through that. And, it, and the way I kind of think of it is if you know, if you've had someone who's passed away in your life who you're very like, you know, close to, you can mm -hmm. still be connected with them. You know, even if they aren't like physically here, right? There's that, there's that yeah. 
you know, kind of like sense that you can get where like, I was even watching this. I was thinking of my grandfather who passed away, you know, so like yeah. this is and, and you can kind of still get those feelings. And, you know, there's doesn't come from nothing like people think it like it's oh, it's just your brain. It's like, no, it doesn't come from nothing. There's a reason it happens. Again, mm-hmm. there's that meaning piece, um, you know, and, and I'm going to I'm just going to. I'm going to keep throwing that in there, but, um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 it's really interesting because how they show the vastness of space is they'll use kind of, it, it's, it's more of like the placement of the music in yeah. the movie. So the music in a lot of cases, and like when you kind of start to hear a lot of like the sounds, it's like ethereal, it's, it's really, you know, it kind of sounds like we're sprinkling, you know, and, and not in, in the non-action scenes, I should say. Um, it's showing that connection yeah and it's showing the di- not only that connection but the dichotomy between that connection and nothing hmm. so when there is that nothing it's extra holy crap this is yeah. terrible like i don't you know because think about what it's like to be alone like you don't like being alone i mean you know maybe you like be sure okay like maybe some like, people like to be alone but like isolated in isolated in nothingness yeah. <laughs> like that is the most alone alone you can possibly be yeah. versus you have very quality, strong connections with people. Mm-hmm. There's something connecting everybody kind of yeah. thing. And if you kind of buy into that, you have that feeling. You have oh, yeah. that, you know, it's it's like a visceral sense. You can't really describe it. Language starts to kind of fall apart as you kind of get into this. Because Listen, it's, you, you, can have, you can have those material <laughs> reasons to be happy. You could be chasing right. your dream. You could have achieved your dream. You could be successful. You could be comfortable. And yet it's so well documented that those material things aren't, enough Mm -hmm. and if you are isolated you don't have those connections with other people you're gonna you're going to fail to thrive right you're not gonna be you're not going to be able to find that true kind of happiness Mm -hmm. i'm also failing to find a way to describe this Mm -hmm. but it's just i thought it was really cool too i remember when the movie came out that wasn't well received Mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't like it i was like oh it's so lame love is the answer if you just look at it like it's like oh it's a cliche kind of thing it's like think about it there's a reason it's cliche it's because we all feel it we all know it (laughs) right it's such an important thing right even if you feel like you don't feel it you don't experience it right i mean you can be single for a super long time guilty (laughs) and still I feel very well connected with my family. Right. I feel very well connected to my community. And so I'm not saying that my life is loveless, but I have those beautiful connections with people. Mm-hmm. And that helps me keep moving forward and keep enjoying this. Yeah. Uh, enjoying life. Right. Uh, as a starving artist. Yeah. Kind of thing. Exactly. But it's, uh, no, it's, I have no idea where I'm going with this, but it was, it was a beautiful meeting. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and, and I think where we're, you know, where we're kind of, where we're landing here is we're really showing just how like powerful and how visceral this can be mm-hmm. and how the music is kind of meant to sort of prop this up. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, how do we describe this? It, 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 it's more, I mean, like the sound design is important. We've talked mm-hmm. about the other aspects, but the placement, the actual placement, the timing, all of that, yes. it's all very well connected. Oh, this. that is key. And that's one of the reasons why the director and music editor have such an important role in finding the placement of the music. Because the mm-hmm. composer, composers, we are very guilty of becoming attached to our music. Mm-hmm. Right? You write a piece of music, you've got an idea of where you want it to go. This has happened to me so many times where I've written a piece of music. I'm thinking, this is wonderful. This is great. This is exactly what the story needed. And the director's like, not quite. We, we, we want to set this off. We want to like set it off and do, make it start differently or make it start at a different point or something. And these different points where, again, kind of my earlier point of the composer has to be a storyteller, not just a musician. Right. And I really like that. The idea we've talked about how the sound palette can be important to telling a story, but you're, in, you're entirely correct that these 
choice of placement of your music, when it starts, how it starts, when it ends, when it's used, when it's not used, those are also incredibly important elements to helping to tell your story. Mm -hmm. Now, you've got some composers uh, who are very minimalistic in the way they use music. For example, like Joe Hisaishi, a lot of the Studio Ghibli movies, very minimal music. Mm -hmm. Interstellar, another great example, three-hour movie, just over an hour worth of music. Um, it's used, and that's including the credits. The credit music is used, and that's included in the 70 minutes worth of music found in the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. These movies are known for the music. Interstellar, widely thought of as one of Hans Zimmer's greatest pieces of music, and one of his greatest soundtracks. And yet we've got pieces movies like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, where it's wall-to-wall -wall music. There's almost mm -hmm. no dead air. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But the way the music is used, and that's one of the reasons why it's so impactful, is being deliberate on when and how the music is used, and not just focusing on the music itself. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm still kind of dead on my feet. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, and, and, and that's all, you know, that's all relevant. And I think that it, I think that it just kind of goes to show just how much all this is connected. And mm -hmm. again, it comes full circle, right? Everything yeah. is connected. Everyone's connected. We're all connected um, by the fifth dimension, apparently. But um, <laughs> the fourth, yeah, this, yep. is the, this is the fourth dimension. It right? was the fifth dimensional beings who can perceive the, the fourth, fourth dimension. dimension. Right, right. So, um, which is funny because it's us. Um, but, uh, you know, again, spoilers. I was about but, to say uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, well, that's, that's technically his theory. Right. That's his theory. He, he says, well, we, we never get confirmation. We don't get full confirmation, but it's I mean, we do see him do all of the yeah. things that they that sure. they observe. So, well, um, yeah. which that goes into like some other themes that would be really fun to talk about. But I don't yep. that that goes beyond the music. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, this entire episode has gone way beyond the music. This is more about this episode has been less about like exploring the music of Interstellar and more about how this movie impacted us. personally. <laughs> right. Well, but like. Right. But the, but I think that that's actually an important thing. Of course, because the reason you know the reason yeah. behind that is because the the music plays a really minimal part, right? So like we've kind of talked about how it's it. Yeah. I mean, it, I no, no, say it doesn't play a minimal part. It's not you. It's, it's not featured. Yeah, it's, it's not like when you think about it. I mean, when we think about it, sure, we think about like the music and how you know how it's great a supporting it is. actor. It's a supporting role. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there are movies and things like that where like the music is like. You know, it's very memorable. Like, you know, you mentioned Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, Harry Potter. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, some aspects Star of Harry Wars. Potter. Star Wars is a massive one. Yep. yep. Um, like the Lion King, right? We're just, we're on a John Williams and Hans Zimmer game. Yep. But um, hard not to be. <laughs> you know, it is hard not to be. But, uh, you know, we grew up with both of them. But, um, you know, all that to kind of say, you know, this, there, there's a lot of like under, under the hood kind of stuff mm -hmm. going on with the music. And that's yep. where... And this is why I kind of am like, meaning meaning happens, you know, it's there. Yeah. You know, and, and whether we intend for it to be or not, meaning is there. Because we wouldn't be able to look for it if it wasn't. I'd say meaning is in the know? eye of the beholder. Meaning is in the, in the eye of the beholder. I would agree with that. Yep. But if Even there was no if... meaning, then we wouldn't be able to find it, right? No, I think the meaning is something that you have inside yourself, that you bring with you. And the music just makes you realize it. 
Yes, and I would also say that we're not going down the channel. <laughs> like, this is gonna be another thirty-minute conversation, <laughs> just circling around the point where we just aren't defining meaning as the same thing. No, uh, yeah, we're yeah. We, that, that's we have our, different that's definitions. Of it. Of it. Yeah, that's the crux of it. We have different definitions, and so of course we're not going to agree on it. So, yeah. Right. And again, these are things that you can think about when you're kind of like, of course, when you're when you're you know when you're trying to kind of come up with this stuff because and that that's why Interstellar you know has the effect on people that it does because it's incredibly confusing it Ew. uses you know it uses the elements of attachment it uses the elements of love which like we like to think of as very simple to understand things but if you think about it they're really not right so like attachment is i can't i i couldn't talk to you about attachment for less than an hour because it's there's so much to it love same thing it you know it there's yep. such everything is so it's so much more, it's as complex as it needs to be. Exactly. Basically. And this movie is very complex. Very much so. <laughs> Fun stuff, though. Yeah. Fun stuff, indeed. I really and enjoyed this one. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. All mm -hmm. right. So, as usual, my friends, if you got it to this last point, you are a real one. Thank you. Comment below. I'm a real one. I'll give you a heart or something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Just find, uh, share the podcast with anyone you think would find it enjoyable. Share your highlights. All of that stuff helps us grow. Um, yeah. So let us know if there's any videos that you'd like us to sell, uh, any movies you'd like us to talk about in the past. Glad these aren't reviews. We're not really just kind of, uh, this one basically breaks us of sticking strictly to this, mm -hmm. the soundtrack. So we're basically just talking about movies and soundtracks that we love and just geeking out over it for a bit. Yeah. So yeah, let us know which ones we think we should watch and talk about. But until next time, keep studying, keep working hard, and keep writing new music, my friends. We'll see you in the next video slash podcast. <laughs> see ya.